So last week I promised that Randy would be back for this week's episode, but he's not fully mended, so I've brought in a special guest co-host. I'm Batman. Does that make me Robin? Um, if you want, Lily. I mean, it's really <laughs> me, Randy, but I've got to milk it while my voice recovers from the last couple of weeks. I'm feeling a whole lot better tonight, but our guest today could really be counted as kind of a superhero. He's a former designer. He's now a professional ethics consultant, and he's here to talk with us about some of the great moral dilemmas that product people might face today. You know, things like Spotify and Joe Rogan and crypto and and, and more. Kenneth Bowles has also written a book on the topic called Future Ethics. So if you enjoy this chat, you can read all about it too. Now to the pod cave. The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Kenneth, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, For anyone who, well, A, didn't know how to pronounce your name, and B, doesn't recognize it, can you just give us a quick uh, background on yourself? How did you get into the design and product space, and what are you up to these days? Sure thing, Randy. So I, yes, I'm Kenneth Bowles. Hi, everyone. I've been a designer for about two decades, working in UK tech and a little bit of Silicon Valley. Um, I graduated, actually got a master, have a master's in IT and thought I was going to be a software engineer uh, coming out of that. But actually, it was the design, the human factors stuff that really put its hook in me. So that's where I've ended up. Um, About five years ago, I started to realize I was maybe I don't know if disillusioned is the right word, but uh, I was starting to feel that things weren't quite going in the direction that the industry needed. And I had a, a real interest in in ethics. Um, I haven't studied it previously or anything like that at that stage, but I, I was able to take a bit of time out to try and understand that space better. And the more I got into it, the more I realized there's a hell of a lot there that we as an industry are not on top of. And so I decided, you know, this maybe something is like this. This is maybe something that I can do to add some some value here to try and translate work that's happening from moral philosophers, ethicists, writers, artists, critics, and so on. Try and translate that and contextualize it for working designers, PMs, engineers, and so on. So that's what I do now. Is I, I consult on ethics for tech teams and particularly design and product teams. And and it's more specifically, and you've got a book of the same title. It's future ethics, isn't it? What what exactly is future ethics? Yeah, so there's kind of a double meaning there, right? It's, you know, what what is the future of ethics, but also what is the ethics of the future? And it's possibly the latter meaning that's more more interesting to me. I think a lot of the emerging technologies that are obviously going to uh, really hit the mainstream in the next few years have significantly deeper moral importance than some of the ones we have today. AI is the obvious one. There's a very uh, strongly growing field of AI ethics, but that's not the only 
space. There are there are plenty of other emerging technologies that pose quite significant ethical, social, and political challenges. Um, and of course, the time to have conversations about those is now, not when they come to market in. 5, 10, 15, 20 years time. We need to try and understand what that's going to mean for our world and how we design those things right in the first place before uh, potential damage is unleashed uh, upon our markets and even on the world. And one of the things you um, mentioned there was you had a a moment of um, considering the ethics of, um, of what you were designing. What was it specifically that you were kind of looking into at that time or working on, if you're allowed to talk about it? Mm, sure. <laughs> I mean, to talk about it. So, yeah, I, I didn't have a particular kind of moment of conversion. It wasn't that I was filled with horror at what I was doing or anything like that. Um, mm. Before I moved into that space, I was at Twitter for three years. So I was a uh, design manager in the UK, so effectively heading up uh, the UK design efforts there. I also filled in as a PM for about nine months when we were sort of struggling to hire. So I sort of did a bit of PMing as well. Um, And, you know, I I thought generally the company made relatively good decisions at the time, but I think it made some mistakes. uh, And I think I was was quite disappointed with the way it was failing to progress, particularly on things like user safety. And as I said, I had this growing interest. And actually, you know, I've been lucky enough, I've been giving talks on design particularly for you know a good decade or so and in one of them uh, quite a quite a prominent talk in 2011 i did mention i think we're missing a trick on ethics and that feeling i think stayed with me and it was mostly just you know diving into that space a little bit made me realize just how deep it was and how little attention we've been paying to the people who are on those shores before us and so i just found it sort of doubly rewarding uh, you know, diving into that and realizing, you know, maybe this is this is the role that I can do. Then, is to, as I mentioned, to put that into context for people. But it wasn't one particular moment where I was, you know, saying I have to quit and I have to suddenly completely change my life. It was a little more of a kind of an accretive process that um, I was getting a little bit more and more concerned. And this was um, around about 2015 that that happened. And obviously, then in 2016, we had a significant growth of interest in technology ethics, a lot of it which predicated uh, around uh, the Brexit and Trump elections, which I think surprised people and made people think, well, the world isn't quite rotating along the axis that we thought it was. Maybe we were part of uh, that surprise and that shock, and maybe we need to do better. Yeah, it's really interesting how much emphasis there is now um, in all of the product talks you know, that I, I have on ethics. And I think as product managers and product people, we are much more aware of it as a topic than um, we were, you know, f- even just five years ago. So before we get into other specifics, I'm going to flip back again, because Randy mentioned your book, um, Future Ethics. So there just seems to be like no end of ethical dilemmas online at the moment, but also, like you said, with future technology, uh, self-driving cars and things like that. What's your sort of personal long-term vision for uh, an ethical and safe future for us? <laughs> Goodness. I mean, that that's quite a deep question. Um <sighs> If we're talking future as in the next 30 years or so, then obviously the first thing we have to talk about is climate crisis. We have to deal with that. We have to find ways to live with the enormous disruption that that's going to create. Uh, The tech industry 
is responsible for around about 2% of global emissions. Well, that's rather data centers alone are responsible for about 2%, which is the same as the aviation industry. So we have to do better on that. But really, the answer to that is the same as I think my broader vision for ethical and responsible technology, which is technology that isn't just built for the benefit of shareholders, isn't just built even for the benefit of users, which I think designers sometimes get a little bit too fixated upon. We also have to consider technology's potential impacts on non-users, on communities, minorities, uh, groups of employees, for example, um, and do our very best to do our best according to all of those interests. And also even the the interests of uh, non-human animals and then the planet itself. So it's about balancing and living up to our responsibility to this much broader set of stakeholders for our work and recognising, yes, of course, we want to benefit our businesses and of course we want to benefit the user, but that's not enough. Mm. Okay, I'm going to make it easier on you and give you a couple of, uh, let's (laughs) do a couple of specific role-playing exercises. Uh, And so... Years ago, I was actually at a Sirius Satellite Radio when they signed Howard Stern and gave him his own channel and gave him a few hundred million dollars to do that. And it was a a really interesting thing because there was no question he was moving away from terrestrial radio. There was a different uh, case of how it was being regulated. There was no question that we were the publisher of his content in, in some way. Now we can look at what's going on with Spotify. And with Joe Rogan, it's an interesting thing. Again, they've paid him a lot of money to give him, uh, have him exclusively on their platform. If I'm a product person at Spotify, one of my goals is going to be to increase subscriptions and revenue. A leading metric for that is, I'm guessing, uh, time spent listening by people. Presumably mm-hmm. that all is more addictive. It's more likely to renew my subscription, et cetera. And then with music... I have to pay royalties, so podcasts is a potentially more uh, a more revenue positive area, and I want to grow that. On the other hand, I've got this potential issue. Uh, where where would I even start? I mean, it's I'm not necessarily the person making the business decisions here. As a product person, how do you take an ethical approach to uh, to all this? Any 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 advice? Mm. I generally think product managers have more power than they realize with this kind of thing that said this is probably mostly a policy driven solution i think what spotify really have to do is to make it clear what values are they going to expect content producers on their platform to adhere to and then they have to enforce those um and we've seen this across other social media properties that if you do that too late it gets very tricky to sort of retrospectively uh, put some in. So most of most of that action is really within policy. But I think product managers have, obviously there are, there are tactical things they can do, you know, within, within the product, right? You can have sort of in-app interventions, things like, uh, you know, like caution stickers, like the equivalent of those parental advisory labels you used to get on, on foul-mouthed CDs, that kind of thing. So, you know, in-app warnings to say, you know, hey, there's some controversial stuff in here. Bear in mind, this may not meet our editorial standards, or it may be factually questionable. And of course, then PMs could say, well, you know, here's a resource base. This is very much the kind of thing that Facebook have done, right, to combat misinformation, pointing people who are consuming this content to alternative perspectives, verified perspectives, and say, look, we don't necessarily condone Mr. Rogan's perspectives, and you might want to read more about the truth and the facts here. Um, 
you can obviously do things like sort of deprecate his material in the user interface if the user has shown uh, that they're not going to be sympathetic to that message. You know, if they're subscribing to a bunch of left-wing podcasts, they're probably not going to be wildly interested in what Joe Rogan has to say. And then, of course, you can do things like highlighting both sides. You know, say, well, here's a podcast full of, or potentially full of misinformation, thanks to uh, Joe Rogan. Here's another perspective from someone who's, uh, you know, taking an opposing view. The problem with that, of course, is you get into that both sidesism that plagues a lot of news properties like the BBC and the New York Times. So assuming you have the capacity to go deeper, this is always about incentives. And mm. you mentioned you're absolutely right. You're going to have time spent listening as your key metric. So I think you've got three approaches. You can try and tackle that metric in three ways. So one of the things you can do is you can look to replace that metric, try to find something else that has responsible and ethical importance kind of kind of baked in. And you might say then if you're Spotify, well, what matters is not really time spent listening. Maybe it's the number of podcasts that people sample. Maybe we believe that it's better for people to be exposed to different points of view. And actually, the way we measure that is by proxy saying, well, if they're listening to 20 podcast hosts rather than one on repeat, then they're probably getting a broader worldview. So you could replace that metric. The second thing you can do is you can modify the metric. And this is what YouTube have done. They had exactly the same. They had a, a, a time spent or a time viewed metric. And they have, I believe, modified that to quality time viewed. The challenge comes in, of course, while defining what does quality mean. So you have to have some internal kind of grading and say, essentially, this is junk food quality content. And then this is the high nutritional stuff. And, you know, that's usually like a sort of secret internal metric. And you use that as some kind of multiplier. So it might be that Spotify wants to move in that direction. But what I really like doing and what I, I try to train companies to do is to be a bit realistic and say, you're not going to get rid of that primary metric. It's it's so critical to the business. What you might need is a counterweight. I call it a mutually destructive metric. So a metric <laughs> that you compare with that primary metric to say, if we do what we are probably tempted to do, which was to gain that primary metric, then the other one will suffer. So in the example of, uh, you know, consumer uh, games, for example, you know, it's, it's something like you could have average revenue per user, but your destructive metric for that could be app store rating, right? You could, you could really juice people to try and get revenue out of them with all sorts of dodgy dark patterns, but they're going to hit you on the app store rating, or you could have, you know, app uninstall rates or something like that. But you know, if both of those move in a positive direction, then you're probably doing something right. So probably my advice to Spotify would be, if you can't modify that metric that strongly, then look for a counterbalance, look for a mutually destructive metric that will help keep you a little bit in check. So um, let's take this out a little bit wider. And this, this could apply to oh, Substack and Medium and any number of other places as well. Um, Spotify carries a lot of content uh, from artists and podcasts like ours that they don't pay us for, that we willingly uh, use them as a distribution channel and they benefit from that. But with Joe Rogan specifically and a number of other artists, they have uh, paid to make them exclusive on their platform. Does that have an effect on on the, the guidance that you gave? Is there an additional responsibility when you are not just a platform, with, but when you are actively uh, um, sponsoring the content? Yeah, I think there is quite a big difference from a moral point of view. I'm talking. I'm not. I'm not a legal expert, but I think from a moral point of view, you are condoning, you're endorsing, and supporting that content, and that turns you from a neutral platform into a publisher. 
And that means, obviously, there are uh, responsibilities that you take on. You know, a lot of the social media platforms, as you know, try to play this get out of jail free card saying, well, we are neutral. We are not hosting the content. We're merely allowing users to contribute. And, you know, this has been a, a, a forefront of a lot of debate. And I think there are really there's, there's two things that change that dynamic. Um, one is where there's algorithmic curation of timelines. You know, I think if you are Twitter or Facebook and you have a purely user curated chronological timeline, um, then I think you probably are a platform. But the minute you apply some kind of sorting algorithm to it, then there is, I think, a case that you are prioritizing certain content over others uh, against user wishes or without user consent or without user at uh, least input into that. And I think that makes you closer to being morally responsible for what you're promoting. And then the second uh, variant is, as, as you say, with Spotify, it's, it's exclusive paid content. Um, and I, for me, that completely changes the, the game. I don't think Spotify can get away with the same excuse that Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and so on have tried to get away with and saying, well, we're just, we're here for whatever users put on the platform. And I'm pretty sure the regulators are going to start to look at it that way as well. So yeah, I think it's, there is a very significant ethical difference between those uh, stances. So you can imagine like in the future, obviously at the moment, uh, product managers, like you say, have some influence and, and quite a, a good amount of influence in the experience that customers have in these different environments. But there's only there's a limit to the amount that um, product people can do. And it does feel like we're getting to the point where these businesses really, really need to be held accountable. And like you said, um, you know, at Twitter, they made some mistakes Facebook, we see them making loads of mistakes and we're not even like really under the hood of the business. So, you know, is there going to come a point where we end up with like a global ethical committee for technology or something like that? Do you see it going in that direction? It's possible that there will be national. In fact, it's, I would say, probable that there are going to be national uh, government-sponsored bodies that will be looking closer at technology and particularly wanting to audit algorithms and to show, you know, asking tech companies to prove that their algorithms are free of bias or as close to free of bias as possible, that the decisions they take can be explained in a way that the public can understand. I think that's kind of a, an important part of a democracy, right? And if a decision is taken about you, you have a, a, a right to demand a justification for that. Globally, I can't see it happening. Um, because there's just too much divergence in what various territories want from the internet. I don't think there's as much divergence in, in sort of moral perspectives. You know, you sometimes hear people say, well, ethics is, ethics is subjective and relative. And actually, you know, if you talk to a, an ethicist, um, almost all of them disagree with that. You know, it's context dependent, but we actually have a lot that we do agree on. We all, we all have some sort of central ethical truths that really don't vary country. But globally, it's not realistic, I think. I think the other group of people, other than regulators, that are that are really in a position to influence this is tech employees at large. And so the big trend we're seeing right now in tech ethics, I would say, is that employees are realising they have a bunch of collective power. So this is why you're seeing, for instance, the walkouts that have happened at Google, uh, first over Project Maven, which is this DoD 
um, project that could be used to analyze drone uh, information, drone footage. And then uh, there was a, a, a second walkout, essentially a wildcat strike over allegations of sexual harassment uh, from an executive at the company. And so tech workers have a huge amount of collective power. And so I think there's going to be pressure from regulators for sure, and possibly some some proper structures on a national level or a state level in the US, but also that pressure is coming from underneath too. Uh, and it's also coming from the press and it's also coming from the public, but let's focus on those two forces maybe for now. You know, we can say that uh, we aim to be good and work for good, but you know, Google famously got rid of its don't be evil motto. And if you look at the uh, the, the underlying uh, amount of money that's spent on lobbying and things like Department of Defense contracts and the Jedi contract and things like that, these things are absolutely massive financial drivers. How much of an effect do these walkouts and these internal efforts actually have? I think I think a good amount, to be fair. Tech workers are in enormous demand. That has only increased in 2021 with this whole great resignation and so on. This is very much a candidate's market. Tech workers are expensive. They're hard to hire. And, you know, if they lift their hands off a keyboard, nothing gets built. But they also have the power to inspire press coverage. And, you know, everyone has noticed that the press cycle has turned very much against the tech sector, um, certainly in the last five years. I would say that's really the tech sector's fault. But the press, you know, smart journalists now have very good contact decks of critical voices, um, insiders at companies who may be willing to leak, recent employees and so on. And they know how to build a narrative that sells stories. And even if uh, a walkout, you know, a, a, a one hour protest doesn't immediately cause, you know, an executive vice president to start sweating the resultant press coverage and things like that. And then as a result, the, the public sentiment that will turn against the company, it really does have, I think, uh, a building effect. So, you know, that's going to be a lagging indicator, right? It's going to take a little while for that momentum to really snowball into something big. But it's very clear there's lots of evidence, and lots of data that shows the public has now really um, become much more sceptical about the ethics of the tech sector. And, you know, that is going to be uh, seen in terms of brand toxicity and people essentially leaving behind products and services that they don't feel comfortable with. And I suppose, you know, earlier you were talking about the, um, I guess, the sustainability of uh, technology companies and or, or companies in general, and that we have to consider not just growth and profit and revenue, but our impact on the the wider world. So in that vein, what's your kind of opinion on crypto and cryptocurrency and how that is, uh, you know, who, who's kind of going to stop that ball rolling in terms of, or not necessarily stop it, but make it more sustainable, find a way to make it sustainable if that's possible. Yeah, I think cryptocurrencies really serve one cohort, and that's people who own cryptocurrency stocks, you know, or, or not stocks, but, you know, um, holdings in certain cryptocurrencies. And that's really the only thing that that sector has been interested in. Um, I see, personally, I see almost no ethical case for cryptocurrencies uh, at all. First, I would say that any cryptocurrency that uses proof of work to um, to mine coins or whatever it might be, tokens, that should just be plain illegal. To be honest, I think uh, it is 
unjustifiable from a moral perspective, the ecological harm that it does. And there are, there are a couple of people who dispute that, but um, it, the evidence is pretty strong that it's enormous ecological wastage happening there. Proof of stake might be a more um, sustainable model, but I, I still feel that cryptocurrencies are predicated on um, inequality. Um, you know, the Gini coefficient, this is a measure of economic inequality. The Gini coefficient for cryptocurrencies is worse than the most corrupt regime, most corrupt national regime in the world. Um, there's a lot of motivation for cryptocurrencies that, frankly, is illicit, um, you know, that is antithetical to paying tax on assets and things like that. Now, I don't want to sound maybe too one-sided. I'll recognise there are some motivations <laughs> and use cases for, particularly for Web3, that I think are a little bit more positive. You know, the idea of rewarding artists, for example, artists do not get a fair shot under modern day capitalism. So if we can find new ways to compensate people for creative work and to do that collectively within groups without having to go through centralised systems, I can see the appeal. I can see the validity of that. But anything that's built on that infrastructure that's predicated on, you know, proof of work. So anything based on Ethereum, for example, until they switch to proof of stake, which has been promised for forever, and I, I mean, call me when it happens, then I, I still, I still really deeply worry um, about what's happening in that space. And the, I guess my final thing to say on on crypto is, you've had uh, certain companies, particularly notably Coinbase, who said, you know, well, we're not going to talk about our social impact anymore. Um, you may have come across this. It was about eighteen months ago now, something like that, maybe. And they said, we're sort of sick of this social justice debate. The only thing we're going to talk about at our company now is our mission. And, you know, we, we don't want the politics to get in the way of that. But that's a laughable statement because Coinbase is a heavily politically ideological organization, as is the entire cryptocurrency movement. It's foundationally libertarian. Um, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, it sometimes even drifts uh, toward far right ideologies. So a professor called uh, David Columbia, who's written a book called The Politics of Bitcoin, um, talking about the intersection between cryptocurrency ideologies and far-right ideologies. Um, and so to claim that there's no ideological and no political and no social implications of, of crypto is just, it's just ridiculous. It's a heavily skewed uh, sector, if you like. Let's, let's go back to the one potential positive you said, but I'm, I'm curious to, to, to dig into that for a moment, where you said uh, it could potentially benefit artists and get them uh, uh, more direct interest in the value of their work. I saw something last week, and I'm not, I didn't interrogate it uh, really deeply, so I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on it, but it said something on OpenSea, something like 80% of the NFTs minted on that were fraudulent in nature. Is there any evidence that you're seeing that is actually benefits uh, artists or is this still a garbage in garbage out problem? Right now, honestly, I think most of it's junk, but there are Web3 uh, people whom I respect, who are forward thinking and who recognize that most of the NFTs going around are either ripped off uh, without the artist's consent or they're essentially being used as, um, you know, inflationary vehicles, inflationary assets, you know, sort of pump and dump schemes and all these kinds of things tend to pop, tend to permeate that space, but who recognise that there is something better around the corner. And what they're working toward is a more utopian future for the web and for that kind of collective ownership and collective, you know, membership and support. And I think that kind of mutuality 
that really is, that's appealing to me. Um, I want to see what they can come up with. You know, they keep saying they're seeing this, you know, a far future. Um, I need to see more evidence of what that's actually going to become, because as you say right now, the use cases are polluted and, and you know, frankly, ethically abhorrent. Kenneth, it's been really interesting having some of these dis- discussions and uh, debates with you this evening. Uh, we, oh, let me just say today, <laughs> we've got um, time for one more question. And I think a lot of people will find all of this discussion really fascinating. I mean, I love having these conversations and trying to tackle some of these big problems when chatting to my product folk. But if they're listening and they're thinking, actually, no, I really, I want to do more than just talk about it with people in my network. I actually probably want to get into this and help companies with their moral dilemmas and their questions on ethics. What's what's your kind of advice for how to learn more, how to like really get into this type of work? I think you have to do a bit of legwork, I'm afraid. Um, I think the tech industry has a slightly infuriating um, habit of whenever we discover a new field, we like to think that we're the first pe- people upon those shores. But of course, there have been people looking at the social and ethical consequences of technology for decades. So read them, listen to them, invite them into your companies, pay them for their time, you know, hold book clubs uh, to read their work um, because they've been watching us from the sidelines, you know, watching us running into the same walls again and again, sort of tearing their hair out and saying, why aren't they listening? So listen to them. Um, you know, my book is an attempt to sort of point to some of that work. So, you know, of course, you might want to start there. But um, I'm not saying you necessarily have to go away and read Aristotle and Kant. Um, you can if you want, but um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for the average technologist. <laughs> um, but the other thing is find allies, right? Find other people within your company or within your communities who are interested in talking about this. Because it still feels like a bit of a niche pursuit, at times. And it's hard work, it's unforgiving work, and it can actually be risky work as well. We know what happens to the person who stands up again and again and says, I'm not comfortable with this, this doesn't feel ethical. Eventually, that person gets rooted around in some kind of way. So what you need to do if you think you might be that person, find other people, start conversation groups within your own teams, your own offices, and see what you can share and see what kind of a change that you can affect together. But as part of that, yes, listen to the experts, bring them in, pay them, you know, really embrace uh, what they have been studying for, well, for decades now. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kenneth. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you. Okay, Lily, let's get back to superheroes. If you could have the power of flight or invisibility, which one would you pick? Which one do you think is a more ethical power to have. Oh, man, I don't know. You need to give me like more notice before you ask me questions <laughs> like this <laughs> so that I can dwell on it for a bit longer. Well, I always thought invisibility was just creepy. I mean, you're only going to use it for things that don't seem very ethical. So, Yeah, I was going to say flight, actually. Yeah, I was definitely, definitely going to say flight. <laughs> okay, listeners, if you have a contrary opinion, please do let us know. But... In the meantime, tune in next week. Same bat podcast, same bat time. We'll catch up with you and we'll have another wonderful guest. See you then.
Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and... Me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.